Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. A terrifying cult discovered deep in the woods. A pulse-pounding pursuit. And a creepy co-worker with stalker tendencies. Headphones recommended. Listener discretion advised. Welcome back in, everyone. I'm your host, Chad. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. So brace yourself. This is Disturbed. We return off the heels of Christmas. Here's hoping everyone had a safe and enjoyable time and got all those terrifying gifts you were hoping for. And a happy new year to all as well. This episode is dropping on New Year's Eve. If you're planning to let loose a little bit this evening, make sure you have a plan for getting home safely. And lastly, Make sure to stick around to the end of the episode to hear a teaser for a brand new episode of Disturbing Calls. But enough about all that, let's get into it. Our first tale of the evening comes courtesy of Reddit user Outworlder39, and he certainly got more than he bargained for deep inside the woods. Performing this experience is Tom Aglio. I grew up in Ohio in the 70s, and me and my childhood friend Joe were outside all the time we could manage it. Joe lived on a farm that bordered a pretty big forest, and my parents would drop me off in the morning and we'd stay in the woods all weekend. We'd only come out for school. We loved pretending we were frontiersmen. We'd build shelters, traps, practice making fire with sticks, the whole nine yards. When we got to be in high school, we got this notion to pull a stand by me. This was based on the movie of the same name that had just come out. The idea was that we'd walk the railroad tracks out in the country, but instead of looking for a dead body, we'd find cool bridges to fish from and camp a little ways off the tracks. Of course, we knew this was dangerous and we'd likely be trespassing, but we were kids. We had a lot of fun. We did find beautiful rivers. We discovered bridges no one went to. We fished. We hid from trains. At night, we camped in woods just near the tracks and made small hidden fires. Nothing bad ever happened. It was idyllic. In fact, it was so fun, we did it multiple times. Never had a problem. After high school, me and Joe went our own ways. We both left home, but always stayed in touch and always tried to coordinate visits so we'd see each other occasionally. 
Well, one summer in the mid-90s, it worked out that we were both in town for about a week. We'd do stuff with family in the day, and at night we'd either catch drinks at a bar or sit outside Joe's house around a fire and talk about the old days. One night, me and Joe got to talking about our stand-by-me trips. Well, nostalgia and beer are a hell of a mix. Soon we decided to take a day, walk the rails, camp one night, and walk home. The day came. We started out early morning. We had my wife drop us off in our old spot where we used to start, right outside our hometown. She thought this was absolutely crazy and made sure to mention it. When she pulled away, Joe suggested that instead of walking the usual route, we take the opposite direction, just to be adventurous. We knew the land well, we had a map, so I gave a what the hell and off we set. The day went fine, it was fun and a little sad, but in a good way. We found a bridge and sat on the edge, smoked a joint and moved on. We had no fishing gear, but we brought some canned food and other stuff. Before night started to set in, we picked a spot to camp. It was a thick forested area, trees on every side of the train tracks, so you felt like you were in a tunnel. We had brought small hammocks to sleep on, but before we set them up, we decided to do a little scouting of the perimeter. Now, this is what we used to do in the old days, too. We'd walk the area around a little bit to make sure some dude's house wasn't just over a hill and we were actually camping in their yard. We walked maybe a hundred or so feet into the woods and up a small incline. We figured if we didn't see anything from on top of this short hill, we'd be fine. But when we got to the top, we saw an old building down at the bottom, about a hundred yards into the woods. It was barely visible. We pondered over what to do. We both assumed it was a sugar shack or something because there didn't appear to be a clear road into it. From where we were, there didn't look to be anyone in it either. All was quiet, no movement could be seen, no lights. We decided to walk a little closer just to make sure. We came down the hill very slowly, and as we neared the building, we saw it wasn't a sugar shack at all. It was an old church. It looked like it had been abandoned for years. It was a squat, sagging building whose wooden planks were almost black from years of moss and rot. A cross still stood on top of the place, also weathered black. None of the windows had glass and there were no doors, just open doorways. We got close enough to see inside. There were rows of pews and a built-up section in front for a preacher to stand. We didn't go all the way in. We didn't want to. Beyond all that, there was no sign of anyone else. No footprints, no paths, no roads. It was an abandoned church. We left immediately and went back up the hill to our spot we had picked to camp. Having a hill between us and the church made us feel better, but we were still a little uneasy. We chalked it up to the natural creepiness seeing a church in the middle of the woods would elicit. Besides, at this point it was dusk and we just decided to rig up our hammocks and go to sleep and move on at early morning. Night set in and as we lay in our hammocks and shot the shit, we began to hear something in the direction of the church. Our conversation about it went a little like this. Do you hear that? The fuck is that? It sounds like people singing. And it did sound just like singing. We both slid right out of our hammocks and hunkered down, straining to hear more. We listened for a minute or two and the singing continued, but it wasn't getting louder. Finally, we decided to creep back up the hill and see if we could spy where the sound was coming from. We could still move very quietly in the woods from the old days. It was second nature to us. The moon was barely out, but it provided enough light so you wouldn't walk right into a tree, but it was near pitch black. We didn't use flashlights as we crept slowly up the hill, and we didn't talk. When we got to the top, we saw light in the distance. 
It was coming from the church, and the singing was coming from inside. Joe and I put our heads close together and had a hushed conversation that boiled down to, can you believe this shit? The light looked to be candlelight from the way it flickered, and though we tried, we couldn't make out what was being sung. It sounded like church music, but in another language. We sat and watched for a while, trying to see who was in there, but we only saw occasional shadows. We had no intention of getting closer either. We had about a football field length between us, and we aimed to keep it that way. The singing continued for a bit, and then it stopped. After that, a booming male voice began to chant. I was already freaked out, but this voice thoroughly scared the shit out of me. It sounded like some Old Testament preacher you see in movies, but again, it was like he was speaking in a different language because we couldn't understand a single word. Eventually, it got to where the single male voice would say something and then a bunch of voices would answer in song. This lasted for a while and then they all broke into this long, sustained wail that just kept getting louder. It got so loud and so disturbing that I covered my ears. Then it stopped. At this point, I was just getting ready to say, let's get the fuck out of here, when Joe put a hand on my shoulder and hissed, they're coming out. We were far enough away that we couldn't make them out really well, but what we could see was a line of figures walk out the open doorway, all holding hands in single file. We could see some of them had flashlights. They began to sing again, and the light from the flashlights began to move toward us and the hill. We booked it down to our campsite, grabbed our shit, and ran to the tracks. Once there, we ran down the tracks in the direction we had come from. After a few minutes, we stopped and looked back. We saw lights coming down the hill. They were moving erratically like whoever was holding them was shaking them. We continued to run in spurts and walk as fast as we could. We eventually stopped seeing the lights and came to a road. By our map, we knew a small town was about 15 minutes down it, and we walked there, got to a 24-hour gas station, and called my wife to come get us. My wife and other friends all just thought it was kids messing around, but I heard those voices and they sure as hell didn't sound like kids to me. Not sure who those people were, but it was definitely the creepiest thing that happened to me out in the woods. Now, let's acknowledge some of our newest Patreon members whose contributions help keep the show running smoothly. Tyler Hodgkiss, Abigail Walsh, and Teresa Tate. Thanks so much for supporting the show. They're all enjoying an ad-free listening experience, early access, and our bonus series of disturbing calls. Six bonus episodes await all Patreon members and are available to binge right now. The newest one dropped just days ago. Visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast to join today. Next up, Reddit user EUCrimeJunkie experienced a heart-stopping, pulse-pounding pursuit that's not for the faint of heart. And join me in welcoming our newest guest narrator to the show, Sassy Sledgehammer, Deandra. When I was 13, I broke my leg in a nasty bicycle accident. I ended up in a plaster cast from my hip to my ankle for eight weeks. As it was coming up to Christmas, my younger brother wanted to go to the theater to see the Christmas show. I was 13, moody, and accompanied by a bright pink cast everywhere I went. I was not feeling it. My dad 
never one for going to the theater, offered to take me to Pizza Hut instead. It was a rare opportunity to spend time with my dad, who was often working very long hours. He worked as a police officer, which, at the time, I didn't really take an interest in what he did. We had a great evening at Pizza Hut, and we got back into the car to go home with full bellies and some leftover pizza. I remember babbling away to my dad as I had been the whole night. Enthralled, I had my dad's undivided attention. After a while, I noticed he wasn't really responding anymore. We were fairly near home, but still on the main roads before we turned off toward our housing estate. At first, I thought he just lost interest, but I glanced across and noticed he was permanently looking in the rearview mirror. I asked him what was up, and he said, The car behind us has followed us all the way from Pizza Hut. I glanced behind and commented that we were still on the main road. I couldn't see that this was an unusual route for this guy to take. He said I need to see whether he is. I don't want to lead this guy to our house. I rolled my eyes. My dad was always paranoid about stuff like that. We couldn't even tell friends we were going on holiday because he was convinced the house would be broken into while we were away. We were coming up to a residential area before ours that I knew from doing a newspaper round. I suggested the street coming up on the left as it looped around in a horseshoe shape through a housing estate and brings you back out onto the same main road we were on, just further up. Nobody would take this road to come out onto the main road again. My dad turned off, and so did the car. I will never forget that feeling, that sinking feeling as I watched the car sharply turn behind ours. The car placed its full beams on. I let out a gasp and looked to my dad. He'd gone into work mode. He had completely shut me out. He accelerated down the street, and as we came to the main road, I saw there were many cars still on the main road. He pulled straight out on the main road, meaning the car coming on the main road needed to brake sharply and held down their horn at us. I kept my eyes on the road ahead, breathing deeply as my dad weaved in and out of lanes. A part of me was completely terrified, and a part of me was still convinced this was not really happening, that he had exaggerated or mistaken this. He wasn't really following us. I dared to look in the side mirror and saw it was a different car behind us. I felt myself relax a little. We turned left at the coming roundabout, giving very little room to anyone, and a few moments of holding my breath, thinking we were going to hear the sound of metal on metal. The street we had turned onto was slightly quieter than the road previous. I slowly glanced into the side mirror. There was still a different car behind us. I sighed relief and thought this had really been my dad's imagination. Suddenly, the rearview mirror became completely illuminated again, and I awkwardly turned in my seat to see a car pull out sharply from behind the car behind us and pulling quickly behind ours again. I looked to my dad again. He grabbed his phone from his pocket and told me to call someone in particular in his phone and put it on speaker. My hands were shaking. I could barely press the buttons. A cheerful voice answered, and before he could say anything else, my dad quickly summarized what had happened. There was a pause, and I could hear voices speaking in the background, radios beeping and answering through radios. My dad barked at me to keep naming the streets we were on to the guy on the phone as my dad randomly turned down streets trying to keep onto main roads. I'm randomly calling names and trying to remember to say the direction we were heading. 
The car was so close behind us and completely blinding any view behind us. All I could think was, please don't hit us. If we crash, I cannot run. What the hell can I do? My leg had only just been plastered. I knew I stood no chance. I suddenly wondered if they were getting close enough to take a shot at us. This for me was unthinkable. It was England. That was not the norm. Why the hell would someone want to shoot us? We continued to weave down streets and random turns as I was tossed around the front seat, clutching onto the mobile in my trembling hands. The voice on the phone shouted, Turn into the Tesco parking lot that's coming up on the left. We have three response vehicles coming from the other direction. My dad sharply turned into the car park, skipping the red light. I shut my eyes, again waiting for the sound of metal on metal. As we swung into the near-empty car park, the car behind us in close pursuit, blue lights surrounded our car from what felt like all directions. The sound of sirens was deafening. My dad got straight out of the car and ran behind the car. I screamed, still thinking someone could have had a gun, and tried to look over my shoulder to see when my door swung open and a police officer was crouching into the car to help me get out. My arms were completely jelly. I could not even use the crutches to help me stand. Another police officer came, and between them, they helped me as I hopped to the back of the police car. They were kind and tried to distract me as I was trying to see what was going on and where my dad was. I couldn't really see from my angle, and I also couldn't turn properly due to my leg. They did their best to reassure me, and one had clearly just been through the nearby McDonald's drive through offered me his tea. They just sobbed, begging them to tell me what was going on. My dad, after some time, came over to the car and told them to take me home. He had checked in. My mom was back home with my brother. As the police car turned around in the car park, back toward the entrance, we could see the police surrounding the vehicle and three men in what looked to be their late 20s were handcuffed, leaning over the car whilst a sniffer dog and two police officers were taking things out of the car, one of which was a baseball bat. When my dad got home later that night, I asked him what it was about. Who the hell were those men and why were they following us? He was very reluctant to tell me anything. He did admit it was because of him they were following us. He explained that he was in a drugs team that dealt with, how I understand this as an adult, the interception of large shipments of drugs that were being transferred across the country and sometimes people lost a lot of money when they were caught. I just stared at him. I had no idea what to say. He just shrugged and said, Sometimes, people get upset about that. Dear drug lords who my father took your drugs or money from, I'd rather not meet. This episode of Disturbed is made possible by Fanatics. Fanatics is the world's largest collection of official fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. If you enjoy our show and are looking to buy a new jersey, sweatshirt, or hat, you can support us by going to podgo.co slash fanatics and getting 25% off your next order. Personally, I've picked up several hats and t-shirts from these guys. The quality is always great and shipping is fast. Go to podgo.co slash fanatics and get 25% off your order today. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months 
as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when Muda, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Now back to the show. I'm sure many of our female listeners can relate to having to deal with a creepy coworker. But what about one that just might be willing to follow you to a different country? Reddit user Help Creepy Landlady had to endure just that. Performing this experience is Aaron Lillis. This is the story of a coworker I had a long time ago, so I can look back on it and laugh now. But at the time, it was really distressing for me. To give some context, every summer I would do some temp work for the company where my dad worked. It was an education company, so they always needed temp workers around July-August time for all of the exam remarks that they had come in. It was data entry work, but it suited me fine, and it meant I could earn a little extra cash while I was at university. I did this every summer from when I was 19 right through to when I was 23. And then I got another job at the same company for a bit after I graduated, but we'll get to that later. For now, all you need to know is that I was a reasonably familiar face there, and everyone knew I was my dad's daughter. The main downside of working there was that I'd clock off work at 5 p.m., but I'd have to wait for my dad to finish work, since he was the head of an entire department, so he'd end up staying a bit later. Every day, I'd bring a book with me and sit in this little foyer area between his department and the department where I worked, since it had the most comfortable chairs. I must have been 22 years old when this happened, because it was the penultimate summer that I worked there. I had just had my hair cut short for the first time in my life and I'd had it dyed red as well. I was sitting on these couches reading, when all of a sudden this guy approaches me. Let's call him Leon. 
He tells me that he works in my dad's department and he thought he'd come introduce himself. This was a pretty common occurrence for me and I was aware of this guy. He was young and decent looking, so a few of the women in my department had a crush on him. I was dating someone at the time though, and I had never actually seen him in person, but I could see what they saw in him. We got to chatting and he mentioned that I'd changed my hair, so I told him about cutting it short and he cut me off mid-sentence. This is where it started to get weird. He said, no, first it was brown and you didn't have a fringe. Then you went through that phase of curling it. Then you put the fringe in it and dyed it red. After that, you dyed it purple. Now you've had it cut short and dyed it back to red. This guy I had just met was describing over two years worth of hairstyle changes that I'd had. I felt creeped out, but he seemed like a nice enough guy and I guess I had worked at the company throughout that entire time so it was reasonable to assume that he'd noticed me before. That should have been the first red flag. He asked me if I had Facebook, and I told him that I did, so he said he would add me. That seemed pretty normal, but then, after he'd sent the friend request, he asked me to get my phone out so he could watch me accept the friend request. I'm British, and it's therefore impossible for me to be impolite, so I got my phone out and showed him that I had accepted it. I thought that might calm him down. Bear in mind, he wasn't a bad-looking guy, so I felt a bit flattered at this point that he was so keen on me. That sense of flattery dissolved real fast. After the Facebook thing, he kept asking me if I had MSN, and I told him that I didn't. I swear throughout this conversation, he asked me if I had MSN about four times. Then, the final time he asked, he was like, Please, can you get MSN so we can chat after work? It was like he had something really urgent he wanted to tell me, but I'd only just met this person. I kind of laughed and said about how I hadn't used MSN since I was a teenager without necessarily rejecting him. Then he said something like, well, if you don't have MSN, then do you have Skype? This seemed like the perfect opportunity to bring up my boyfriend, who was a foreign student and went back to his home country during the summer. He was the only person I spoke to on Skype. I said to Leon about how I didn't have my own Skype account, but I used my dad's Skype account to talk to my boyfriend. I really thought this might ward him off. I was wrong. Without missing a beat, he said, can you please just get your own Skype account so we can video chat after work? He said it like I was somehow inconveniencing him, like this was something we'd agreed to do months ago or something. I had no idea how to react, so I just sort of smiled and laughed. Thank the heavens, someone from my dad's department walked past at that moment and was like, Leon, aren't you meant to be at your desk? He scurried off pretty quickly after that, but not before reminding me to get my own Skype account and send him the details. I told my dad about the whole exchange in the car ride home, but all he said was that Leon was very friendly and that a lot of the women in his department liked him, so maybe I had just misunderstood the situation. I thought he was probably right, so I tried not to let it bother me. Later that evening, however, I was on my computer doing university work when a message popped up on my Facebook. It was Leon. All the message said was, we like the same movies. I don't know what it was, but something about this message freaked me out so much. I decided not to respond and logged off Facebook, hoping that he wouldn't notice I had been online. The next day after work, I was sat in my usual spot when Leon comes over to me. His face was like thunder. At first, I thought he was just having a bad day and was walking through the hallway but my heart dropped when I realized he was walking directly towards me. Why didn't you respond to my Facebook message? I was stunned. How was I supposed to respond to that? 
who says stuff like that in real life? Lucky for me, I didn't have an opportunity to respond because he started off on his tirade. I'm not even kidding. He started listing all of the movies we had in common that he had seen on my Facebook profile. Batman the Dark Knight, Watchmen, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Fight Club. I just sat there watching him reel off all of these film titles. Once he was finished, all he said was, It's okay, I forgive you. And then walked off back to his department. Over the next couple of weeks, he came and found me in my spot every day and talked at me from the moment I sat down to the moment my dad came to get me. I don't remember many of the other exchanges, but I do remember distinctly one day pretending to pick my nose when I saw him coming to see if it would put him off. It didn't. It got to the point where I'd get so stressed out after work that I'd go and hide in the toilets for as long as I could, but the women I worked with started to notice and think I was weird. Eventually, I broached the subject with my dad, and he gave me his car keys after my shift so that I could go hide out in his car rather than in the building. So I'm camped out in his car, and I'm still feeling quite tense, but after about 20 minutes, I start to feel at ease. Surely he won't come looking for me out here. Wrong. I look over at the main entrance, and my heart drops. He is coming out of the door, and he's scrutinizing all of the cars. I sank down as far as possible into my seat, but I wasn't fast enough, and he saw me. He comes rushing off and starts tapping on the glass. So I open the door and ask him what's up. I didn't see you in your usual spot, but luckily the doorman told me he saw you come out here. Why are you in your dad's car? Again, what are you supposed to say to that? I told him I'd had a headache, so I'd come out to the car to take some paracetamol and see if I could get some sleep. At least he respected that, because he told me to feel better and then left me alone. I breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that I was only going to be working there for a few more days before I had to go back to university. I told my dad about the car incident, and he gave Leon a talking to the next day. Leon would still come find me in the foyer, but he'd only talk to me for a few minutes in passing before leaving me alone. It was a big relief. On my last day at work there, I was fully expecting him to do something crazy, but he didn't even come to chat with me that day. I left the office and thought I would never see him again. I found out he was fired not long after I left the company that year because he kept coming into work late and then spent most of his time at work chatting with his coworkers and me, apparently. Fast forward to January of 2014, and I was prepared to move to China for a position teaching English. I had graduated from university, and I was working at the same company, but this time in a semi-permanent capacity. It was my last day at work, so I received quite a few gifts and some fuss from my coworkers. It was about 10 a.m. when who should I see walk through the door but Leon. He had been hired as a temp to do the job that I had done for so many years. As soon as he walked through the door, he saw me and this flash of recognition crossed his face. I wanted to slide under my desk and die. He came walking over to me and was all smiles, asking about how I was and what I was still doing at the company. It was at this point that one of my coworkers mentioned about how I was off to China soon. Leon seized on that and started talking about his friend, who was also interested in TEFL. His interest seemed genuine, so I got to talking about how I got my TEFL qualification, who I got it through, what company I was going to be working for out in China, etc. We chatted for about 20 minutes, and he wrote down some details for his friend, then went off to work. At the end of the day, I was packing all of my stuff to leave, and a few of my coworkers were coming over to say their goodbyes. Don't get me wrong, the Leon incident aside, I had a wonderful time working at that company and I made a lot of great friends. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I see Leon approaching, but I think, what's the harm? He says goodbye and wishes me luck on my new adventure. Then, as I'm literally walking out the door of the department, I hear him call out, see you in China. For the first two weeks of my teacher training over there, I was like a hawk, keeping a constant lookout for this guy. He never did follow me out to China, but it still remains one of the creepiest encounters of my life. And before we go, a little New Year's treat for you guys. The teaser for our newest upcoming episode of Disturbing Calls. Nine one one. What are you reporting? Yeah, my house is getting robbed right now. He pulled the knife out. He came at me like it was a stabbing motion. Um, I'm Dylan Pearson, and I just killed two people. I'm okay. This guy just pulled out a gun. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still hiding in the closet. There's blood everywhere. I got us in our yard. He just. Sam, <laughs> what's he doing? I killed two people with a knife. Ma'am, is he shooting the man? Yeah, he shot him. This guy's still alive, but he's gonna need help. Where are they at? Uh, well, they're, they're here physically, but they're not here, uh, yeah, spiritually. They're, their bodies are there? Yeah. I just, I just killed a man, I'm sorry. Oh, poor Sandy just stopped breathing. Poor Sandy just stopped breathing. Poor Sandy. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Everything comes to an end, right? Everything. This episode of Disturbing Calls is available right now, exclusively to Patreon members. If you want access to this bonus material, as well as early ad-free episodes of Disturbed, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast. You won't want to miss it. Disturbed is a Disturbed Media original podcast. Musical score by White Bat Audio, Co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.